Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Triple R. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. Somehow I've managed to still make it into the studio despite this pandemic. We will not uh, stop broadcasting unless we literally get kicked out. However, not everyone's in the studio. Online with us is uh, Dr. Laura coming live from her bedroom, from her bed, I think. Hello, Laura. Can you hear us? Yeah, we are living through strange times. Yeah. Um, I never thought I would be calling in from my bed. I'm not in bed because I'm like still in bed. I'm in bed because it's where my internet connection is the most stable. But here we are. <laughs> with your dog. With my dog. With your dog. And Stacey is in the studio with me. She, I mean, because you're from the country, so tougher stuff. You're, you're okay to come in. Yeah, I'm okay to come in. Nice to see you, Dr. Shane. Good to see you too. It's actually nice to have another face in the studio with me because it's a bit, uh, yeah, we're a bit discombobulated here at the moment. So uh, for those of you who are not aware, folks, Triple R's kind of gone into a bit of a lockdown. So only the on-air broadcasters and very few of us are actually coming into the station, but we think it's pretty important to keep doing the jobs that we love doing so much. So we are bringing science to you. We have a couple of guests later in the show. Uh, I think one's on the phone and one's via Zoom. And we're going to do our normal news segment and then we'll have a bit of a chat towards the end. But uh I think when Laura hasn't been watching episodes of Tiger King, she's been looking up hippo stuff. Laura, what have you got for us in terms of news? Well, yeah, there are only three things that I that I ask, you know, anybody that I speak to now, which is, of course, just by Zoom, the new normal is, you know, work from home. I have three questions. One is, like, how are you going? Are you going okay? You know, it's scary times. Two is, does anybody know how to run a medical research laboratory virtually? Because I don't, but it's what we're adapting to. And the third question I ask is, have you watched Tiger Kling on Netflix? Because it's really the only bright spark of, of mm. you know. It, it, anyway, basically what I'm saying to everybody, if you haven't watched it, please do. It's so, incredible. So give, give people quick the 20-second uh, the uh, summary of what Tiger King is actually about. Joe Exotic, a meth-toting, crazy, tiger-keeping guy from Oklahoma. I won't spoil the end. You've just got to watch it. <laughs> Incredible. So when I was looking for news this week, and, of course, it's really hard to find um, non-corona news, but it's, mm. you know, it's nice to sort of take you out of that headspace for a second. And, you know, I was thinking about crazy people that have exotic pets. I was pretty interested to come across a story that was published, well, research that was published in PNAS just this week, which was looking at the impact of introducing um, non-native species into new environments. And one of the examples that they used was the introduction of Pablo Escobar's hippos into Colombia. Now, Narcos, another show that maybe we should be watching on Netflix over the next few months. Um, Pablo Escobar, if you, if, you know, just if you need me to fill you in, hopefully you don't. Um, one of the most famous drug lords, most wealthiest ever um, drug lord in Colombia Maybe what you didn't know about Pablo Escobar is that he had um, this huge estate and he built his own private zoo. He had more than 200 animals on his zoo. And after his death in 1993, the Colombian government had to deal with this and they redistributed most of the animals to you know, other zoos. But what they couldn't quite deal with was his four hippos. So they left his four hippos um, in Colombia. That was in 1993. Hmm. Fast forward to today... 
we've got a we've had a pretty much 25 year experiment of what happens when you leave four hippos native to Africa in Colombia. Wow. Well, these yeah. hippos have absolutely thrived. There's now 80 to 100 hippos in Colombia, and it has sparked a huge debate because you've got species where they shouldn't be. They're meant to quadruple also if, over the next 10 years. So. Um, hippos, do you really want them roaming the streets? They're pretty savage. They're quite aggressive. Hippos have killed, you know, more more humans than any other animals. Um, and there's been attempts to castrate some of the males, but it's very expensive, very difficult to sterilize a male hippo. And so there's been a lot of arguments um, throughout ecologists on what's the impact on, you know, the displacement of endemic animals. You know, these are huge creatures. And what's the impact on local fl for flora and fauna? So on this study that's just um, been published, um, the researchers, and it was led by a team coming out of Sydney, they were looking at the ecological impact of introducing non-native herbivores into new habitats. And usually, as, as I mentioned, you might see this as a bit of a negative for ecological destruction. But what they actually found that, you know, there's actually a real silver lining here. So what they found through their analyses is that you introduce huge herbivores, such as hippos, into Colombia, you can inadvertently restore lost ecological traits that were lost long, long time ago. So if we think back to the megafauna that roamed, you know, the world, you know, these large animals that were now extinct 10,000 or 100,000 years ago. In Australia, we had giant kangaroos and huge unimaginable beasts. There were giant sloths, which I love to think about, size of elephants, mammoths. These um, megafauna that roamed, they would break trees, disturb the soil. There would be more nutrients um, from their excrement in rivers, for example. They would enrich the soil um, and restructure plants. So basically, if we think, so let's go back to our hippos for a second. Now, they did this um, global analysis and comparisons of reintroduced species and what they would look like, what, how they compared to species that were naturally in these environments um, so many thousands of years ago. And apparently these feral hippos in Colombia, they're very similar in their diet and body size to the extinct giant llamas that um, roamed Colombia. Giant llamas. So they've taken yeah, on, they've taken on the role up. of whatever was in the environment that was a similar size. Yeah, exactly. And wow. so what they found is that it actually makes the world more similar to the pre-extinction past wow. by reintroducing something that's going to, you know, put lots more nutrients into the wild, create more plant um, you know, uh, there's going to be more nutrients, better water quality, and there's going to be more diversity of species from ha having these megafauna back in the environment. That's fascinating. So can I ask a question about, you mentioned the word diversity. Um, with these hippos, like everyone's a cousin. How is that working? You said there are only four of them. How is that a viable <laughs> number for a healthy group of 80 or so hippos, or have they all got three legs? I mean, what does that actually look like? Yeah, how inbred are these yeah. hippos? I don't know about the hippos themselves. I don't think they care so much about the health of the hippos than the impact the hippos are having on the environment. Yeah. But it's an excellent point, Dr. Shane. Well, I always just think, you know, how many do you need to restart the species? And presumably the number is greater than four. Just four. Unless it was one male. and Was it one male and three females? Actually, or? it was. It yep. was one male and three females. So that one male has... Oh, actually, if you kind of read about how he got these um, <laughs> hippos over to Colombia and his sort of, you know, drug, you know, yielding planes, you know, 
it's all it's all quite funny, but um, it's really interesting that I never think he would have envisioned when he brought those hippos over to Colombia that he would be conducting a long scientific experiment on the ecosystem. Yeah, so I thought that was fascinating really stuff. Nice. Fascinating stuff. Now, uh, Stacey, I've got a comment and a question for you. Okay. Uh, first of all, happy birthday, and are you oh. having a party? Oh, thank you, Dr. <laughs> Shane. Yes, I've, I'm here on my birthday, and. Um, I'm having a virtual party with my family uh, later tonight. So okay. my mum and dad and my sisters are joining via uh, Zoom and we're going to all have a barbie and uh, a cake together. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Happy yeah. birthday. Thanks, Laura. Virtual uh, parties were all the rage, you know, Zoom happy hours. Yeah, yeah, and a house party as well. My, yeah. my uh, husband's been having chats with, with his friends uh, via house party. And, uh, yeah, and shout out to, to, to my husband and kids making me a cake as we speak. Yeah, it's interesting how people are changing their behaviours. I was driving down um, Sydney Road this morning on the way to the station, and I noticed people pushing the buttons for the traffic lights. And I thought, you're probably safer just to run against the red. If it comes to it, um, just go against the red. Don't uh, touch the traffic lights. Carry people. a pen. I carry, yeah, with yeah. Your carry a pen. And, or and... kick the sucker. You know, and <laughs> it, well, it depends on your height. But, you know, if you can get up there, you've got, a bit, you know, you've got the flexibility, just, just use the shoe. Um, it's a... <laughs> Is that the sort I would of a... not be touching those buttons. No. <laughs> no. Do it with something Bad else. Idea. Your car keys. Yeah, and I don't know how to scare people away from that. I mean, I could say to them, look, I, I've licked all of those buttons in the last 24 hours. That might turn them off, Mm-mm. but um, they don't seem to be getting it. So please, people, don't push the buttons. Just run across against the red. It doesn't really matter at this point. Um, yeah, yeah, just assume everything's infected. In fact, <laughs> this segues well with the with my news item about uh, SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus causing COVID, uh, COVID-19. So... Um, what I wanted to talk about today was um, the virus structure and why it's so important to wash our hands so that we pre- prevent ourselves from getting infected. Now, I'm certainly not a virologist, uh, but I'm seeking, uh, sourcing a lot of information from a virologist and very good science communicator, Professor Ian McKay. He's got he's based in Brisbane and has a blog uh, called Virology Down Under, um, mm. which really clearly sort of articulates um, uh, some of the important information about viruses and particularly SARS-CoV at the moment. Sorry, Laura's probably having the same thoughts as I have because she's got a dirty mind that virology down under could mean a variety of things. It could. It was probably a poorly, poor choice of words. <laughs> Um, so uh, he's recently published a piece with um, Professor Pali Thordeson from the University of New South Wales, and um, and they describe um, the virus structure. So SARS-CoV-2, um, like many viruses, comprises three uh, key building box blocks. We've got RNA, which is your genetic material. We've got proteins, and they um, play several roles, including uh, breaking into target cells and virus replication, as well as lipids. Now, this is the coat around the virus, and that assists with protection of the virus and also spread. Um, and cellular invasion. So essentially, it's a self-assembled nanoparticle. So around fifty to two hundred nanometers. Uh, so we can't see it on, on those on those buttons that you're pushing. Mm. Um, and it's that um, that lipid layer which is the weakest link. Um, so essentially, why we're encouraging everyone to wash their hands is because soap dissolves that fatty membrane of the virus, and it essentially falls apart. So it's no longer active, um, and and therefore you can't infect yourself. Um, Alcohol based hand sanitizers are also um, offer a similar effect but they're not quite as good as soap so essentially the ethanol around 60 to 80 percent oh there dr shane's washing his hands yeah, with his hand it. sanitizer i got my own little bottle of alcohol yeah good on you very yeah. good 60 to 80 percent ethanol i hope it's working um but essentially what <laughs> that's drying does, out my hands good <laughs> it, it it acts as a solvent so what it's doing is dissolving that lipid membrane and disrupting that supra um, molecular interactions with the virus so um so 
without without any disruption with soap or al- alcohol um the 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 proteins the rna and the lipids are all held together with um quite a, a they form a quite a strong velcro like bond which is really hard to break up and and so that's why hand washing is so important so it breaks up the virus uh so then uh if you have got any active virus on your hands you inactivate it by washing your hands or physically wash it away uh, and then when you're touching your face and, and eating and rubbing your eyes and picking your nose, mm. the active virus doesn't go in. Picking your nose? Oh, I hope you're not picking your nose. Well, not unless I've washed my hands. Yeah, wash your hands. <laughs> Washing my hands first. It's interesting, though, to, to get some of these messages out. I, I know when I was talking to my parents and so forth, I was, I was trying to get the message out of how to do this. And I thought, you've got to, you've got to sort of, this is where a lot of the science communication is just broken down. Mm. Like the concept of wash your hands for 30 seconds. 30 seconds is a long bloody time. Yeah. We have to get it out in ways. So I remember I was, I was telling my dad, and I said, you know, back in the old days, if you got paint on your hands, you know, you, you knew that water would not get it off, yes. right? And you'd, you'd have to really soap up and you'd have to scrub your hands for a while to get that paint off. And I said, imagine that when you're washing your hands, imagine you're washing paint off your hands because that takes time and it takes rigor. And, you know, it's hard to do. But if you, you know, if you're just washing your hands, people who wash their hands after they go to the bathroom, whatever, you know, it's like a two-second job with some warm water. Yeah. It's not the same and it's not sufficient. So, you know, if you think about it, think about washing paint off your hands or something something like that that you remember from your you know, youth or whatever where you did something that was hard because yeah. it should be hard work. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if people understand, you know, that, that virus structure that they're mm. trying to break down that layer of lipids with soap or alcohol-based hand sanitizer, then 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 that's, that's why you can't do it just with water you need you need that intervention with the soap yeah. or, or the alcohol-based hand and uh, sanitizer so if you're at home and you've got a sink um, that's probably your best bet but when you're out and about and you're shopping and you're putting your hands on the supermarket trolley or you're at the atm or you're pushing the button across the pedestrian crossing just assume that that's got virus on it and then if you're out and about you can whip out your alcohol-based hand sanitizer and yeah. that'll break down the virus as well i'm just whipping out this little thing of alcohol sanitizer everywhere i go yeah good good people on love it, it. I can't believe this is what it's taken to actually encourage people. It takes coronavirus to say to people, you need to be washing your hands. But um, with the amount of, you know, people, I'm seeing people walking down the street with a bottle of hand sanitizer. Well, not anymore because I'm not leaving the house. But say a week ago, um, you know, everybody's got their hand sanitizer out everywhere, which is which is really great. But um, I'm wondering, as a skin immunologist, what the changes are going to be to the commensal bacteria and natural skin commensals after all of this. Oh, my God. I love the fact that, you know, with your lab collapsing, all your students in that unable to do any work, you've come up with a new area to go after. You're going to get them all on this project where they're just going to be looking at people's skins from a distance, from home. Laura, you're onto it. (laughs) You're not a professor for nothing. This is great. I, I got plenty of time on my hands now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you, you know, you, you could allocate that time to running your lab remotely. Uh, yeah. you, you don't have virus on your hands, but you've got time on your hands. But I've also th- been thinking about, um, uh, yeah, the decrease in other gastrointestinal infections. So your salmonella and your norovirus and your campylobacter because everyone's washing their hands so they're not getting gastro again. God, we're going to be so clean. It's going to be amazing. So yeah, you'll be able to walk up and just lick a person's palm and feel good about it. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> Gross. Folks, we're going to take a break for some uh, music and uh, hopefully we'll have our first uh, guest uh, on the same Zoom channel as Laura in a few minutes. This could uh, catastrophically fail, but if it does, uh, we've got plenty of music to play and, uh, you know, that's what we do. Uh, and it's, it's community radio, you know, nothing's perfect. But uh, here's some tunes for you and we'll be back in just a few moments. Triple R. 
Yeah, we're back, everybody. You probably heard that whole conversation. It was all good. Uh, everyone could hear us for the whole time. Mr. Button, first time doing a multiple Zoom chat on air. You're doing well. You see, uh, we didn't say anything bad during the break, at least I don't think so. No, I don't think we did. Anyway, uh, normally at this point I would say in the studio, but that doesn't work. So uh, via Zoom is our first guest for today, Dr. Barbara Cardoso. She is a lecturer in the Department of Nutrition, Dietetics and Food at Monash University. Barbara, welcome to Triple R. And we can't hear you. Hang on now. Try now. Thrilling experience, I must say. Uh, It's great to finally meet you. We've been uh, exchanging messages on Twitter for probably, what, six months or something or other. It was great to finally finally talk to you. Uh, Sorry you can't be here in the the studio in person. It's a bit of a shame, but uh, this will work well. Now, you're, you're looking at some of the elements of nutrition and dementia that you've been, you've been working on for quite a while now, but um, run us through what the thoughts are around dementia and how nutrition might play into that, because I suspect um, you know, most of the things we've talked about over the years around dementia are, are different sort of um, solutions or, or therapies, not so much based on nutrition, but based on things like you know, the removal of iron from the bloodstream and various other, you know, problems associated with Alzheimer's and various forms of dementia. So how does nutrition play into it? Uh, well, from the nutrition perspective, we work more in regards of protection or reducing the risk of dementia. So diet uh, provides with all the nutrients we need, and all these nutrients are important to protect our brain against uh, neurodegeneration. And all sorts of uh, bioactive compounds and micronutrients are important for that. So my research mostly focuses on selenium, which is a mineral with antioxidant uh, capacity, and it has been to be. Uh, it has. Um, it was demonstrated to protect. So in in vitro and in animal models was shown to protect um, our neurons against degeneration because of its uh, antioxidant role. And then um, when I did my master's uh, 12 years ago, long time ago, uh, I could see that in in a population that was more prone to saline deficiency, people with Alzheimer's disease had a lower selenium status when compared to healthy controls. Mm. And since then, I've been trying to investigate how selenium plays, how much selenium is needed to get the most of it in terms of protection of our brain cells. And that was going to be my next question is, selenium is not something that you sort of find as a, you know, promotional aspect of, hey, you know, eat more bananas. They've got lots of selenium. I mean, we hear about vitamin B, C, other, other things all the time, folate and so forth. But selenium is not something that I've come across. What, what's it in? Where do we find it? Ah, that's a really good question. Uh, you find it in Brazil nuts. Oh. So Brazil nuts is the, um, the main selenium food source because of how it is concentrated in the nut and because it's highly available. So, and this was my um, PhD project still, Phil, uh, five, six years ago. When I gave one Brazil nut a day as a selenium food source to older adults who had mild cognitive impairment. And then that was a small study, but quite interesting, uh, with quite interesting results, because after consuming uh, one Brazil nut a day for six months, those individuals performed better 
cognitively. Mm. And we we could see that at the beginning of the study, they were they were all selenium deficient. And after consuming one Brazil nut, only one a day for six months, they recovered from selenium deficiency and performed better cognitively. So it was another way to demonstrate the relationship between selenium status and uh, cognition. So I, I'm not a big nut eater, so I suspect I've probably never eaten a Brazil nut in my life. Where, where else... Laura's, Shame. Laura's uh, shaming me. Um, I'll, I'll make sure to get it delivered to you. <laughs> Thank you very Just much. Get a mixed bag of nuts, Shane. Mix, mixed on. bag of nuts. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, what, what else do I find selenium in? I mean, it sounds to me like it's something where almost the entire population would be deficient in this particular uh, material. Yeah, so, this, so selenium is found in different uh, types of uh, food source, like meat. Uh, fish, uh, wheat, so several veggies too. But the selenium concentration in these um, foods depend on the selenium concentration in the soil. Uh. So, it's, so it's totally dependent on the concentration in the soil. And we don't have national data here in Australia, so I cannot speak for the whole country. What I know is that in Tasmania, uh, based on some old studies, selenium concentration uh, in the crops is not super high. So uh, people in Tasmania tend to be more prone to deficiency, but it's not the same here in Victoria. So apparently in Victoria, uh, some farms are uh, enrich their soil. So we see, so based on my studies with uh, conducted with populations here in Victoria, people are not as prone to selenium deficiency. Interesting. So in Victoria, people are not um, as in need of a Brazil nut day as people in other parts of the country, but I, I cannot speak for, for the other states. Yeah. Now, Stacey's got the question where you can't see her because I, you know, That's okay. technical problems. <laughs> uh, I hope you can hear me. Can you? Yes, I can. Great. So I had a question about, so... Um, so people eating Brazil nuts, as Dr. Shane highlighted, is pretty perhaps rare in, in, in places like Australia. But what about in other parts of the world that might consume Brazil nuts more frequently? And is there a difference in the prevalence of um, dementia and Alzheimer's in those countries compared to uh, Australia? That's a really good question. And I get this question quite often. And I don't have a clear answer because there is no data about that. But it's just um, we just need to have clear that Brazil nuts are produced in the Amazon um, rainforest, so parts of uh, north of Brazil and parts of Bolivia and Colombia and Bolivia. Um, we don't have data specifically on um, those areas regarding prevalence of dementia, so I cannot I cannot speak mm. um, about that. What we know is that in that area, uh, the Amazon region, uh, selenium uh, deficiency is low prevalent. Mm -hmm. But we've seen in some previous studies that the more industrialized um, food those populations have access to, the less Brazil nut they consume, the higher the prevalence of selenium deficiency. So given our current situation, Barbara, what would it take to get some more selenium into, say, for example, wine? Wine? Well, I think there's <laughs> going to be... Just for uh, 
Yeah. I didn't mean to bring bad news here, but <laughs> mine is not a good selenium source. <laughs> Shane, you can't get it into your rosé. Oh, uh, you can't? Yeah. But, but um, let's look on the bright side. Red wine has resveratrol, mm. and resveratrol also has an antioxidant um, role. So it was shown to um, have good effects on the brain based on animal studies. So let's take that wine. Yep, wine's and still good. Come across Brazil now. Um, safe. <laughs> some good news is there's a lot of, you know, chocolate with Brazil nuts in it. I know this, this is some absolutely useless trivia. In England, it's all the rage. My dad loves a good Brazil nut chocolate bar. Yeah. Do I need to bring you some, Shane? I can, well, wait, I'm not going home anytime soon. <laughs> it will have um, for sure some selenium in it, but yeah. just be mindful about the sugar content, fat content and calories. <laughs> oh, you're killing well, us, Barbara. You're killing us. During these times, it's a bit of a free scroll, you know? <laughs> we've, got it, we've got it, you know, bulk up for the winter um, because <laughs> this, sure thing. this is going to happen, right? <laughs> I'm doing my part on that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, one of the things that I'm interested in with the selenium is do we know if there's sort of like threshold limits above which and below which this problem occurs? Like how much, how much selenium do I have to have uh, in terms of my brain's access to it for me to have these protective qualities. You, you know, often when we talk about when someone's dietary sort of levels are deficient, it's it's an arbitrary line of what we think is reasonable. Do we have anything that really connects, you know, this is the amount of selenium you need for a protective sort of diet against this sort of dementia, or is that unclear? Well, we have uh, dietary recommendations for selenium intake, it's of six here in Australia because a recommendation might vary across uh, different countries. But here in Australia, um, the recommendation is of 60 micrograms a day for women and 70 micrograms a day for men. However, we don't have clear if this recommendation it's, uh, is the best one to make sure we are protecting our brain because uh, things are not as simple as they might sound. And selenium, although it's quite important for our whole body, not only for the brain, some recent studies um, have demonstrated that excessive selenium intake might actually play some harm effect in our body. So it is known that uh, selenium intake at toxic levels are quite uh, harmful, but we still don't know how much is too much. Mm. And to be careful, because although you might be protecting our brain, you might be causing some harm uh, to other tissues, for example, the liver or yeah. kidney. So we still don't have clear how much it's um, the best amount to be consumed. In the meantime, we should uh, we should stick with the dietary recommendation. Yeah. So when when you mentioned the one Brazil nut a day experiment with some people with some some dementia, what sort of effect did you actually see? How profound was that? Um, in terms of cognition, you yeah, mean? yeah, yeah. So in that study, so that study was conducted in a Brazilian population, and they were all selenium deficient, as it is common for that specific part um, in Brazil, in São Paulo state. So that that said, um, they recovered from selenium deficiency, and my hypothesis is that the impact we saw was because they recovered from selenium deficiency. 
So I don't think I would see the same impact in a selenium replete population. Mm. So what we saw was that so their selenium status improved. And out of the five cognitive tests, they performed better in verbal, verbal fluency and construction of practice. Mm. Uh, and this was quite um, different when compared to the control group who didn't receive any intervention. Yeah. It's look it's fascinating stuff Barbara. Now, just off topic a bit, but your um your area of expertise seems to be I I'm looking at a lot of the different fields at the moment saying okay, which ones are going to be huge as we come out of this? You know, as as we come out of the whole, you know, pandemic phase of us all being isolated, all of a sudden people are going to be running to a whole lot of disciplines saying, "Help me out. I really had a bad binge Christmas that's lasted 6 months." I mean, what what do you think is going to happen there in terms of, you know, dietetics and, and the way in which you know we look at nutrition and so forth presumably so much is going to shift if we're if we're bunkered down for a protracted period yeah my impression is that some people are interested in understanding the role of different nutrients in different foods in the immune system in the immune response so there was some papers coming out recently showing that zinc is quite um important in protecting against this this um coronavirus. So this is one example of one micronutrient playing an important role in the immune response. Um, we just need to be careful because mm. there is no magic on that. And rather than looking for a specific uh, magic solution in a one specific micronutrient, we need to be mindful that a healthy uh, dietary pattern with healthy choice will play a better role than one isolated nutrient. Yeah, so you said a lot better than I've been saying it. I've been telling people that food is a good thing for your immune system. Like if you eat some food, that will help you. And, <laughs> you know, that's about as far as I'll go with my knowledge. Like because beyond that, it there's a lot of snake sales people out there that are really trying to sell some crap. And and people, yeah. you know, are scared they'll, they'll take anything on. So my advice is just keep eating food. <laughs> your immune system needs that. Yeah, Correct. exactly. Fresh food. Just go stick with fresh food. Yeah. Yeah, and we're lucky in Australia because we're not going to run out of that. People really hook on to certain things and say, and say the reports that came out about zinc, for example, you'll go to the pharmacy, zinc's completely sold out on the multivitamin aisle. So, you know, yeah. Yeah, there's no yeah. magic bullet for this. Exactly, exactly. And I think you're right when you say that we are lucky here that we are not going to run out of fresh food. So right. I'm quite every time I go uh, grocery shopping because I can see I can have access to all the fresh food, uh, although canned food is just, you know, sold out. So what are people eating? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just eating stuff I've, I've found lying around. It's, um, it's terrible. But uh, no, nah, we're all good. There's plenty of food in the supermarkets and that's a supply chain problem, not a supply problem. We, you know, it's just how fast people can pack it onto the shelves, not that we, we have it. So I think yeah. um, if people understand that a little better, they, I think they'll calm down a little bit. Whereas the idea that you know, there's going to be no food, that's not true. It's just how quick these poor buggers who are working all through the night to put things back on the supermarket shelves are, can only do it so fast. And if you buy it all at the same time, then you know, you're going to have to wait another couple of days before it gets back on the shelves again. So, Barbara, thanks so much for talking to, to us today. It's an absolute pleasure to, to finally meet you, uh, even though it's over Zoom and, and chat about this stuff. And I think it's, it's really fascinating how um, some of these materials can have such a big effect. I will, I will do what I will no doubt find disgusting and try and eat more Brazil nuts to, 
to keep my selenium levels up. Although I'm glad they don't live in Tasmania. Thank goodness we shut that border. They're all going to come and steal our selenium food. Thanks so much for chatting to us. <laughs> Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Okay, see you later. That was Dr. Barbara, Dr. Barbara Cardosa, a lecturer in the Department of Nutrition, Dietetics and Food at Monash University. Folks, we're going to take a break now for some music and we will be back in just a few moments uh, with our second guest, hopefully on the phone for today. Triple R. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to 3 Triple R. It's Einstein and Gogo. On the phone now, we have Glad Bino. He is a research fellow from the Center for Ecosystem Science in the School of Biological Earth and Environmental Sciences at the University of New South Wales. Glad, can you hear us? Yeah, perfect. Thanks. Thanks so much for taking the call. Um, I think uh, you're working in an area where at the moment I can imagine a lot of this stuff is just not being talked about, but you, you work on one of Australia's most iconic species being the platypus, yeah? Yeah, definitely. And and what exactly are you looking at there? Because this is this is one of the most unique species in the world, but it's one that most people wouldn't have seen in the wild, right? Yeah, it's an extraordinary species. I mean, obviously, it's a, quite an Australian icon. We've got it on our twenty cent coins, um, and on a global level, it's um, you know one of only two egg laying mammals uh, currently in existence in the world. So very very unique. Um, it was a bit in the headlines, and uh, you know, as we were going through the the, the droughts, and are still um, in some areas are still drought affected. Um, so the conditions were quite dire for the platypus uh, and other freshwater species across uh, Australia. Mm. And in terms of um, the sort of habitats that they take up, I mean, what where would we most likely see see a platypus, and how are changes to the environment caused by us humans affecting those um, areas? Yeah, so the platypus has quite an extensive range. It's on the eastern side of uh, Australia, so it, it extends all the way from far north Queensland down to Tasmania. Um, and interestingly enough, it um, manifests quite a different, um, I guess, physiological characteristics. Um, down up north, uh, they're relatively small, and as you go. Uh, to cooler climates down to Tasmania, they get much larger. Um, so the platypus, unfortunately, like many other Australian species, you know, just, is a reflection, I guess, of our of very poor conservation management policies. Um, mm. It's been affected by a plethora of threatening processes, all related to human, you know, growth and development. Um, from early on, it was hunted. There was a, a very large fur trade for platypuses um, up until about. Um, 1912, uh, when there was a, a statewide ban, um, and then after that, uh, I guess it's been exposed to um, the water resource development, um, building of dams, abstraction of water, um, you know, drying up of rivers, um, and then also a lot of uh, land clearing has been a big impact, obviously particularly um, for riparian vegetation, trees along the rivers, the platypuses. I mean, in terms of the habitat, it's dependent on very stable banks and deep pools. And so once you cut down the trees and allow cattle to trample the, the banks and destroy them, uh, first of all, it loses habitat for, you know, for building burrows and for um, finding, I guess, refuge during the day. Yep. Um, but also uh, increased sedimentation and then filling up of pools and pretty much destroying habitat. And those kind of impacts in, in terms of the increasing sedimentation is not just at the riparian zone, but it's at the catchment scale. So, you know, if you're, on, you know, um, improper, I guess, agricultural practices at the catchment scale and land clearing, things like that, 
Um, it can also impact uh, platypus habitat. Um, so those are the key. Yeah, sorry, I can keep going. There are a whole range of other threatening processes. Mm. I mean, yeah. Yeah, and, and what, what's the current status of the, uh, the platypus? Is, is it in danger at the moment? Do we have a good feel for the numbers? Uh, that's the problem, I guess. You know, because of its kind of very shy and cryptic nature, people have always kind of assumed that there's this, you know, elusive species creature that is, you know, only comes out at night and no one really knows in terms of their numbers and behavior, um, which have, uh, I guess, caused, you know, has, is very difficult to monitor in a sense and to assess, accurately assess numbers. Um, there are only a handful of studies that are people that have dedicated their lives to monitoring platypuses, but those are only in, in a few local areas. So unfortunately, we don't have um, a good sense and understanding of, um, you know, the trends over time. We know, for instance, in South Australia, it's practically extinct. Uh, but for many parts, in, you know, Queensland is, uh, is a massive unknown what's going on there. Um, and in New South Wales and Victoria, there are anecdotal evidence associating, you know, even local extinctions of platypuses as a result of, you know, the droughts or um, improper um, development of and destruction of riparian zones. Um, so over the past couple of years, we've kind of been, as part of the Platypus Conservation Initiative, we've been collating information, all available information in terms of trying to relating to the platypuses. And interestingly enough, uh, one study that we did was we looked at old historical newspapers. Nowadays, you can um, find through the National Australian Library, there's the Trove database. So we yep. were searching the Trove for you know, historic reports of people and accounts of platypuses. Um, and what we realized, like, unfortunately, like many other species, um, that the people in the past were reporting numbers that are far greater than, you know, what we see um, in many parts of Australia today. Mm. And so that really reflects, sorry, just <laughs> that really reflects, I guess, the term uh, like a shifting baseline. So uh, a transition in our collective memory of what was and what it is today and what we assume to be normal. So we don't have a good understanding, and unfortunately, we're kind of tied in this loop where we don't have enough data, um, um, which doesn't uh, trigger any conservation action or more monitoring. And so it's kind of been slipping under our radar for many, many years. Yeah, right. Gilad, it's uh, Stacey speaking. Um, so we, we've heard a lot, particularly since the bushfires, of the impact um, that that has had on wa on waterways such as ash and other contaminants that have come in. Uh, are, you, are you seeing that the impact for platypus uh, species are, are, are also impacted by the effects of bushfire and, um, and things like that? And then also, I guess, thinking about the local extinctions that we're observing as a result of the bushfires on um, local koala populations. So are you able to... Um, um, comment on any of the direct impacts of the recent bushfires? Yeah, definitely. I mean, so obviously these are all, I guess you have to think about the pre-existing uh, conditions in the regions that uh, have uh, experienced, uh, you know, the bushfires. And so you have all these uh, threatening processes, synergistic impacts of, of land clearing and very dry conditions. And, uh, you know, so, so in areas where um, there's there's water there's you know there's water in the creeks and there's good riparian vegetation and platypuses can hide um, when the when there's a bushfire so it comes across so obviously the impact won't be as great as dry river creeks um, with a very you know with destroyed uh, banks that platypuses can't uh, hide in when the bushfire comes across so obviously these are all related um, during the, over the, the you know the past uh, few months uh, before the bushfire, uh, with the you know the increasing drought conditions in many rivers, 
Um, we were receiving uh, an, an, a large number of uh, phone calls and emails from concerned citizens, um, you know, observing their rivers drying up and platypuses disappearing and increased predation by invasive species. Um, so, you know, I think the drought in itself had a, uh, had a significant impact than we've seen in the past um, during the millennium drought where um, the Australian platypus conservancy uh, in Victoria recorded some local extinctions yep. um, as a result of the drought. So I think, you know, the drought in itself had a, had a big impact and is still having a big impact on, on platypus populations. Um, and with regard to specifics, the impact of the, uh, the fire and, you know, the subsequent impacts of, uh, on water quality, we don't have a very good understanding. And that's something we're trying to currently develop um, and, and possibly study, undertake some studies, kind of a post-fire studies. Yeah. Look, it's, it's really interesting work. And I think it's one of those areas where, you know, partly because they're such secretive creatures that are hard to find, partly because we don't have a good feel of the numbers, partly because we're just devastating elements of their, um, their normal ecosystem, you know, all over Australia. It's something where I hope there really is a, a far greater emphasis on making sure we maintain this species and its environment in a way that's um, sustainable. Thanks so much for chatting to us today. Good luck up there in uh, New South Wales. I hope you're going well and safe. Um, We really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks so much. Uh, Dr. Galadbino is uh, from the Centre for Ecosystem Science at the University of New South Wales. Folks, we're going to take a break for uh, some music, and when we come back, we will be uh, chatting a bit more with uh, Dr. Laura. I assume uh, I can see her there on our Zoom call. She's in bed. She may have nodded (laughs) off on top of her dog, um, but uh, we'll try and wake her up before we come back. Triple R. Uh, we're back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. I've got Dr. Laura on uh, Zoom. Hopefully, still there, Laura. Yep. You woke Can up. Can I clarify? I was never asleep. I just muted myself so we wouldn't have any more mishaps. <laughs> <laughs> I could just so I, I think to paint the picture for everyone out there, all I can see is a picture of Laura on her bed snuggling a beautiful Labrador cross. Yeah. Oh, she she won't leave me alone. Yeah. Like my life, I was just pampering to this dog's every whim. She's yeah. very confused why I'm here all the time. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people out there who are having they're struggling with what's going on, but pets aren't in that group. They're just like, this is awesome. They're loving it. I heard that there's um, an increase in sales of dogs because they feel everyone wants a dog now at home because they're at home now. It's a great time to rescue. Oh, I hope there isn't an increase in dumping of dogs six months from now that corresponds, you know, like the usual Christmas puppy thing. Yeah, yeah that would not. be that would be yeah. awful. Rescue dogs, good idea. Oh well, look, we've got uh, we've got a few minutes to go, and I thought I wanted to I wanted to talk to you too about something I saw an article in the conversation this week, and it's from a some researcher who actually puts out some good stuff out in in uh, New South Wales, but he made this comment that uh, everyone is suddenly seeing everything in sort of shades of grey instead of the normal black and white world that we're used to, and and so welcome to the mind of a scientist, mm-hmm. and I was like, what, like. I don't, we don't like grey. No, scientists aren't like that. What, what the hell are you talking about, buddy? <laughs> like it was a bit. I mean, to me, this is like this idea that scientists are used to the unknown and they're they're, they're loving. Is that you, Laura? Uh, wasn't prepared for this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think we're really. Uh, you know, we don't go into our our day as scientists thinking. It's all unknown, but I'm good to go with that because I'm a trained scientist. That's not how science really works. I, I think we're used to working I- with imperfection 
and understanding um, imperf- imperfection and and uh, and uh, range of results and limitations of those results. I think we're very comfortable with talking about that. Mm. Um, but I, I but also I guess a mindset of a scientist is more. We, you know, we're very rules based. We we uh, we follow sort of strict protocols and procedures when we're at the lab. Uh, you know, on a, on, a, on a lab bench um, and uh, and very mathematical. So I, I would I would consider that that's very black and white. But that we're un- that we're comfortable with uncertainty. Yeah, comfortable with the idea that we won't necessarily know what the outcome of certain experiments would be and so forth. I mean, but I don't think we're I don't think scientists are unique in that. I think the idea that everyone will learn from us how to how to deal with the uncertainty of this new world. I think that's um, there's a word I'm looking for. I think it starts with B. <laughs> um, what do you think, Laura? Look, I mean, everybody's in the same boat with this, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, scientists aren't really always prepared for the uncertain. Of course, our, our, with our job, we're, we're we're ready for a lot of failure. Of course, you know, a lot of experiments don't work. But um, yeah, no, nobody knows how to handle this, no yeah. matter regardless of what career they're in. Yeah. And um, so, what what are you doing, Laura, at home to handle this? I mean, the isolation. You're, you're used to running a large <laughs> a large lab. What? How are you? What What sort of self care are you doing beyond hugging your dog? Oh, well, Beyond the Dog, like, actually kind of not annoying the crap out of me, but, God, everywhere I go, she's just like, um, no, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I love my dog clarification, but, uh, no, our lab, we are, we're, we're Zooming every day. It's important for, you know, everybody to have that sense of common humanity, that we're all in this together, um, just having regular check-ins to make sure everybody's okay. Um, it, it, you know, it's hard with the uncertainty of we, of course, we don't know how long this is going to go on for, but, um, you know, it's just adapting to the new normal of, you know, everybody's going to see each other over Zoom. And so certainly trying to stay as connected as much as possible mm. but in a just a different forum. Yeah. And uh, Stacey, just on the, the sort of way in which this is operating at the moment, I mean, one of the things we've seen is that a lot of younger people seem to be not necessarily taking some of the advice that's being put out. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seems to me, given the vast majority of people infected with this disease are in some of the younger age groups, the real concern there is not that it's going to make you sick and it's going to kill you. The real concern for me would be that if there isn't a hospital bed available when you need it, and you would, you would recover well as a young person, if that hospital bed's available. But if it's not available, then it starts hitting the fan. Is that is that the right mindset? Yeah, so I think um, we, uh, in the beginning of the outbreak, everyone was like, well, this is a very severe uh, condition for the elderly. And so perhaps younger people were less concerned mm. because they knew that, well, well, it would be a mild illness um, if, if they acquired the illness. Um, but by and large, a majority of cases will be in that um, uh, that. that younger age group um and uh yeah so the importance um of uh taking heed of those physical distancing measures are still very important so that they can't act as a vehicle of transmission to other people that might be severely affected um but there are um you know quite young people that have uh, been severely uh, affected and critically unwell and people are uh have died from all sort of age Mm. groups i don't think there's been any um under the age of 10 but (coughs) Uh, globally, young people, uh, younger adults are being affected too. Um, it's just uh, a spectrum where disproportionately more people who are in the older age 
age groups and with um, immunocompromising conditions are more severely affected. But they are they are not um, they the younger people aren't immune for for this from this infection, and it still is a, a critical uh, issue to consider. And and people of all ages need to take it quite seriously. Yeah, look, we've had some great comments coming through via Twitter, and and you're using our messaging. Um, one, uh, thanks so much for sending this through when I was indicating how you should wash your hands. Um, this uh, particular listener indicated his wife said you should wash your hands like you've murdered someone. No. Oh, Bit grim, but uh, oh it depends. Some people may have their experience. Uh, good, but I also I saw a great tweet come through just before actually from um, from Mark who said that uh, he's. His kids and him have been using the time to um, basically they got themselves an LD telescope and they've been looking at the, the moon last night and the kids were super excited to see some of the craters. So I think it's great. There's a lot of a lot of science going on in homes and people are starting to get you know excited about that and finding new ways to entertain their children. Absolutely, and I think that's cool. Yeah, I heard that um, museums Victoria are all doing a lot of online and digital experiences for oh, kids wow. and families to log on and 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 uh, virtually experience the museum and science works and things yeah. like that. Yeah, that's kind of cool so anyway there's heaps of stuff you can look up online which would be fun to keep the children amused um i i'm going to be amusing my seven-year-old in about an hour so i'll <laughs> try to work out what to do it will involve lasers no doubt um <laughs> it will have to even if we're out in the garden we'll, we'll do something um folks thanks so much for listening to einstein and go we're gonna be back again in one week if uh, nothing changes we're looking forward to giving you a whole lot more science next week with a, a number of new guests but until then we're going to hand over to the amazing team from Eat it. Um, very important because we still all have to eat. It's important for your immune system. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. Have a safe and wonderful week, and we'll chat to you again next week. Triple R. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.